Hello again, I'm Miriam Felton. Welcome to Yarn Stories Podcast. Hey, today's episode is a conversation with Kim Worker. Kim is a writer, editor, and instructor living in Vancouver, British Columbia. Kim's work really focuses on editorial and helping people find the joy and the fulfillment of making. I kind of think of her as a craft therapist. She's helped me articulate my approach to craft more times than I can count, and conversations with her are always eye-opening and soul-filling. I hope that you'll feel that as I chat with her today. Hello, Kim. Welcome to Yarn Stories. Hey, thank you. I'm so excited to talk to you. Me too. We never get to talk as much as I would like us to talk. (laughs) I know, me too. I feel the same way. (laughs) So um, let's do some backgroundy stuff. Uh, What was your first introduction to craft? Uh, I mean, like other than making friendship bracelets at camp when I was a kid. I Uh, loved making friendship bracelets. Me too. Uh, yeah, me too. And it's funny. And I spent a really long time in my like craft career describing myself as never having really been a crafty kid. Yeah. And then one day I was like, hold the phone. <laughs> like I made, I was an avid obsessive maker of friendship bracelets. Oh my God. Um, I think actually that might've been my first business. I think that I sold them to people for like a couple bucks. Nice. Very nice. Yeah. Very nice. Yeah. Like I would, I would put beads on on um oh you fancy safety pins too oh nice. not in my friendship bracelet oh okay safety pins when it was like super cool to wear them on your like on the shoelaces of your kids I oh yeah yeah too. yeah um but so so like you know I was like a summer camp craft kid and then I was like the camp counselor who taught tweens how to make you know sort of beaded hemp bracelets and necklaces mm-hmm. and things like that um, did that too <laughs> right and then I I really kind of sort of adopted a crafty mentality and an identity as being crafty after I was working uh, in the crochet industry for several years. So so as an adult, I got into knitting and crochet and then that kind of snowballed into making anything I feel like making. So you were the editor for Interweave Crochet for a few years. Did you crochet before that? Oh, sure. Oh, okay. So it's Uh, not like you came cold as an editor to a craft publication. You had done some crochet before that. Well, I know. I mean, I did come. (laughs) I, 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 it just wasn't interweave crochet that was my, my crash course. So, uh, so I was the editor of interweave crochet for its first two years Mm -hmm. as a periodical. So it had been a special issue a couple of times of interweave knits. And I was brought on when interweave decided to commit to it and publish it quarterly. Mm -hmm. Um, and so before that, that was at the very end of 2006, at the beginning of 2004, I can't believe it was that long ago. Um, I had started a website about crochet and yeah. I did that like a hot minute after I learned how to crochet. So <laughs> I like I I absolutely became like an like a publisher of crochet while learning how to crochet. That's awesome. Uh, uh, but it wasn't like by the time I was hired at Interweave, I sort of cut my teeth on both. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. When did you add knitting into your craft rotation I learned to knit first so uh I learned to knit around 2003 I had moved to Vancouver from the east coast in 2002 and a new friend of mine was going to take a knitting class and I was like I'll take a knitting class mostly because I wanted to be her friend yeah uh and I finally found a hobby like it was lovely uh the class was oversold so she and it turned out she already knew how to knit so (laughs) I just sat with her and she taught me how to knit and uh and I really loved knitting and then the same yarn store offered a crochet class a year later and in my mind that was like oh like another thing to learn is mm-hmm. like an extension of my craft so yeah. uh, I learned through that class that I had indeed learned how to crochet a couple of times earlier and it had never stuck so Got it. uh n- knitting so it was just me, the right time yeah knitting has never made as intuitive sense to me as much intuitive sense to me as crochet does so mm-hmm. like crochet was just immediately clicked yeah. At that point, like my third go around and it clicked. Um, <laughs> and yeah. 
That's awesome. So um, your work focuses a lot on helping people find their creative voice. What brought you to that focus specifically? Mm, my work in crochet okay. absolutely brought me to that place. So I, um, I discovered through my work in crochet that I had a voice. Like I, I discovered over the course of time. So I worked intensively in crochet for five years, burnt out, and then mm-hmm. kind of walked away from crochet. And in those five years, part of what I burnt out about was that I had discovered that I had a lot of things I wanted to say in this world in my lifetime. Yeah. And I had said them about crochet. Yeah. Uh, but I had more to say. Um, well, and they're universally applicable. Well, that's it. Like I did, I really got to the heart of what drove me. Like what drove me about crochet wasn't crochet itself. It was the role that having a creative outlet can play in in anyone's life. Yeah. And this was specifically because I think the, the yarn arts and fiber arts are so heavily practiced by women. Yeah. I I like it it was very intertwined with a feminist drive for me and and wanting women to feel that their voice was valid and that yeah. what they, they had to say was valuable, not only to themselves, but to the people around them. And so mm-hmm. uh, having had that experience and learning that using the skills I had developed throughout that part of my career as a writer and as an editor and a publisher um, to reach people about kind of expressing themselves that mm. I realized was my drive in crochet and that remains my drive now in everything that I do. Yeah, that's great. There's, for me, it feels, it feels very much like um, a reclamation of the work that we as women have done for millennia without any recognition that, you know, that are, like, there's a really great book, Woman's Work, The First 20,000 Years. Have you read that book? I, I, I no, I've heard of it. Oh my I God, it's amazing. It. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so like, the there's, I feel like us owning the creative nature of our craft rather than feeling just like, you know, like it was drudgery before. It was work that we had to do to clothe our families because we weren't the ones out there, you know, who were allowed to work for money. So like, you know, we would do the homework, we would, we would, you know, weave the cloth, we would make the clothing, we would darn things, we would mend everything, you know, that was the stuff that, that we were required to do societally. And I feel like, like reclaiming our creative joy in it is an act of rebellion. Yeah, I, I like it. Was really interesting to me when, when around the time that I learned how to knit, my mom got interested in knitting, mm-hmm. um, and she came out to visit. And she was like, "Okay, teach me how to knit." And so I was like, "Okay, that's cool. I'll teach my mom how to knit." And I looked over, like on that first day, like after I made her cast on and rip it out like four hundred times, <laughs> which drove her crazy. But I was like, "Mom, I live three thousand miles away. I'm not gonna be able to cast on for you every time. Like you have yep. to go home knowing how to do this." Um, <laughs> She, I looked over and I was like, dude, mom, you know how to knit. And she was like, what are you talking about? You're teaching me how to knit. And I was like, but you're knitting continental and I knit English. And so I, you're having some kind of muscle memory situation going on right here. And then she realized that she had been taught how to knit when she was in high school in the sixties. And she was really pissed off about that, right? Because the boys in her class were not taught how to knit in high school in the 1960s. And she you know, like I was very much raised by a passionate second wave feminist. Yeah. She, well, your you know, mom, your mom has her own like astounding research and a whole history of like, you know, being a smart ass woman. Yeah, but yeah, my mom is my hero uh, in so many ways, and so it was so interesting to me that you know I feel like she is the embodiment of what you're talking about. Like for me, my experience, my personal experience, was never that I was forced into doing these sort of menial, tedious, domestic chores. My mom's experience was that though. Yeah. She was like, like she put off having children until she was in her later twenties, which at that time, (laughs) unheard of, right. She was one of like her, the, the last of her friends to have her first child. I was born when she was 26. You know, like, oh my gosh, which, you know, I mean, she was married super young, like she graduated from university and got married the next week. Yeah. But I was also raised that like, it was not an option for me to apply to a local university, because she had gone 
to a commuter school. Through university, she lived with her parents. And then she got married, moved in with my father. And she never had sort of domestic independence. And so I was raised knowing, one, I would go to university. There is no choice about it. And two, it would be at least a couple of hours away from home. Yeah. So that you had had a separation. You had an independence. You could figure out who you were on your own. Yeah. And it was, it was fascinating and kind of amazing. And so, and, and, and she never hid that. That was not a hidden agenda that was stated outright. And so I like, you know, it, it was always ironic. We always laughed about the fact that as a professional woman, I built my career on these very traditionally gendered, Mm -hmm. very traditionally domestic kinds of things driven by very, um, not domestic, undomesticated, uh, well, like an explicit feminist agenda. Yeah. 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 (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, you know, I, like, I remember part of why I wanted to leave the crochet industry was that I wanted to be able to say things out loud that I couldn't say when I was writing for a publication that wasn't mine. That's fair. Yeah. Yeah. You've been working on this project. I guess it's, uh, you know, the active work was earlier, but, um, Mighty Ugly. Mm -hmm. And you wrote a book, Mighty Ugly. Can you tell me a little bit about that whole project? Yes. So, so this goes back to like the, the, the other side of my worldview. It's like, it's like my, my worldview consists of, I, I don't want to say femi- like, fem- like sort of radical, radical egalitarianism. Is yeah. sort of how I humanism. The world. Uh, yeah, humanism. And also um, sort of in that holistic way, I, I believe very strongly that denying ourselves the negative aspects of anything is doing ourselves a disservice. And so Mighty Ugly is a project that is about valuing the ugliness that is an inherent part of the creative experience. And so if you're not making ugly things, it means you're not trying new things. Because yeah. trying new things means that you're going to struggle and you're going to get it wrong. And therefore, and it's not going to be what you want. Yeah. Right. What you make will be undesirable in some way. Yeah. And I feel like when we don't talk about that aspect of our creative experience, that we, We're we, doing a disservice. Well, and that, that disservice is to put an unreasonable pressure on ourselves mm-hmm. only to get it right and only to share what's right. And that if it's hard for us to get it right, then that becomes shameful to us. Yeah. And I don't think there's anything to be ashamed of in trying something and getting it wrong. Yeah. Um, and so Mighty Ugly is many things to many people, depending on the context and depending on sort of, you know, what somebody's motivation is in doing it. But it is in its most basic form an exercise in making something ugly on purpose. Yeah. And to embrace the failure and embrace the embrace the the learning process in whatever form it's going to show up. That's right. And it focuses us on the process of making rather than on the product because yeah. it it forces us to see the tiny little decisions that we make as we go and to examine the emotional responses we have to different stages of things yeah. and all of those kinds of things. And so by the ugly, I do this as workshop um, and the book is is kind of like, you know, we can't always have a workshop. So, so here's this exp- yeah. exploration. So, so Mighty Ugly is really, is really a gift, I think, <laughs> to the creative <laughs> world. Um, personally, I know that I struggle with stuff like this and I need the reminder. And actually, it's a perfectly timed reminder to talk to you about this because um, I, I've been researching obsessively and intending to make shoes for about five years. Yeah. And I still have not. I have stuff. I have all the materials because that's one barrier that I could get rid of. You know, I could take, I could collect all the materials that I need. I have lasts. I have shoemaking nails. I have, you know, the right hammers. Like I, I have everything I need except the fearlessness to start it. Do you know what I find myself saying so much is that, and I say this to my kid a lot too, is that the, that, (laughs) uh, the absolute disaster of a thing you make for the very first time is perfect for that first time. Yeah. Right? Like yeah. your first pair of shoes is going to be terrible. Um, but it's not a waste of the materials you've bought. It's, yeah. It's 
right? It's, it's the first step so that you can get to your second or third pair that'll actually fit properly and yeah. be great to wear, right? And it's that hurdle of, you know, what if I'm wasting my time? What if it's harder than I thought? What if it's, you know, what if they pinch? What if I'm never going to wear them? What yeah. if, you know, all of those kinds of things. And the answer is like, yeah, but they'll be perfect yeah. uh, for exactly that first attempt, right? Yeah. Since the recording of this interview, I have made sandals. They are a bit of a mess, but they function as sandals. Um, I have a list of mile long of things to do differently next time, but I have done it, and you can too. Picks in the show notes. Well, and you know, as you're talking about this, I'm I'm realizing like internally things that I'm doing. Like, um, I I have I obsessively research things so that I fail less when I finally do it. Mm-hmm. Um, like this is like half of my creative process is avoiding failure. Yeah. Um, it's, it's pretty intense. What well, happens if you fail? Like nothing. And, you right. know, and like, but it's, it's, it's a, like, okay, so this is a term that you've used in, in talks that like I have so internalized that it's a story that I tell myself about myself mm-hmm. that, that I learn things quickly, that I, you know, I create anything I want that, you know, like, like that, there's a perfect translation of what's in my brain to what comes out of my hands. Like that's a story that I've told myself about myself. And it's holding you back. Yeah. Yeah. A little more about this stories we tell ourselves concept. Kim has done some talks, one of which is videoed and you can watch it in a link in the show notes. The idea is that we self-define who we are and that just like a self-imposed deadline, you can change the script. I've told myself that I wasn't an artist for most of my formative years, even though I was making art. Kim told herself she wasn't creative because she was doing editorial work when that has its own kind of creativity. The key is to recognize that these stories are limiting us, that they're just stories, and that they aren't necessarily the truth. They're self-fulfilling prophecies of bullshit. Let them go. No, really, just let it go. Yeah, I feel like I, I spent that first part of my career uh, when I was simultaneously learning crochet and writing and publishing about it, yeah. um, uh, insisting that I was not creative. I just worked with creative people. Um, <laughs> and and I, it, it is true that like professionally, my absolute favorite work to do is editorial. And that is inherently collaborative. Yeah. I love being someone's editor and I love editing a publication, setting the goal and the the story to tell in it a publication made up of pieces contributed by others. Yeah. Um, I love that. That is intensely satisfying to me. And so I, but I had decided that that wasn't creative and, uh, and everything about my life changed when I finally gave in to what many people were telling me, which was that that was bullshit. Yeah. Uh, sorry, am I allowed to swear? Absolutely. To this, is a, okay. this is an explicitly <laughs> rated podcast. Okay. We are fine. Good. Okay. So that that was bullshit and that I had to simply accept the fact that I am my happiest when I'm creating, and in fact, that the 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 most happy I am when I am doing something creative is when I'm doing it with someone else. Yeah, when it's and, a collaborative um, Yeah, and so I, I do things on my own as well, but that when I change the story, I finally feel like I relaxed into just who I am, and I had just been denying who I was, yeah. and... Now the story I tell myself is that I am someone who creatively will try anything at least once. Like this does not translate into the rest of life. Like I am not. (laughs) You're not going to go bungee jumping, right? but you'll try, you'll try tatting, you know, but yeah. But if somebody says to me, Hey, like I'm I'm taking a, like a welding class and I really want to learn how to, I'll be like, I am there, you know, like quick aside. In my sophomore year of college, I was pretty burnt out. I was going to school working, and my boyfriend, who was now my husband, was living in another country. I was this close to quitting school and going to the vocational college to learn to weld. I still want to learn to weld. Maybe I'll make the time soon. Anyway, back to Kim. And, and also as a writer, like, and then I enjoy writing about it. 
Yeah. Right. So I'm writing a novel for the first time because I like trying new things and I've never done it before. And I wasn't entirely sure I could do it. And turns out <laughs> if you just keep writing it, you're writing a novel. It doesn't necessarily yeah, right? mean it's good. Um, and so, but I'm also like, I started a newsletter about it because I felt that I needed to write about my experience writing a novel for the first time. <laughs> And you've got to, you've got to meta it at the same time. Yeah, I totally do. And that's like how my world is. Like when my husband walks in from work at night, like I have to remember not to just immediately start like spewing words at him because <laughs> my day isn't real until I say it out loud. Yeah. And I was like this to my parents when I was in high school. Like my poor mom was a school teacher. She'd come home from work at like four o'clock and I'd be like, hi mom. And then it would be like verbal diarrhea. And she'd be like, dude, I just have to go to the bathroom. Like <laughs> give me five minutes. And so I like, I understand this about myself. I finally put down the fact that like, it's because in, in my mind, nothing is real until I say it. And that's, Thankfully, I can also write it out and yes. then send it to people who, who want to read it whenever they want. But I get it out of my system and it works. Yeah. But I've never been a diary keeper because it doesn't matter if I say it to myself. I say it to myself all day long. Yeah. I say it to other people. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> well, and that, but that's that. So an editor and a collaborative thing and being the voice to help other people come, you know, to help other people communicate their vision and their creative things to everyone else is perfect for you. Thank you. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I always love talking to people who feel called to do something. Yeah. Um, you know, and it, it's such an interesting term to me and I'm not a religious person and I understand it, you know, it's, it's religious background. Yeah. Um, but I, I like, this is, this is what I'm called to do. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Totally going to bring this back to myself because right. <laughs> it's you know it's you and me and we we yeah. chat about stuff like this um it's this feels more like a conversation less like an interview but um but yeah so like it's I as a kid like I have I have one of those books of like what do you want to be when you grow up like like basically here's a bunch of questions for a kid and you answer them you know um I have that book from my childhood and I said I wanted to be an artist huh. and um and I learned how to paint how to oil paint um for like a hot second um my my sister was the oil painter so I have three sisters and I have three brothers and my three sisters um my mom called them the three muses mm. so like they have they have very strong passions they are like you know oldest sister is the mathematician she's the logician she's like that's her um other sister singing, you know, song and dance. Uh, third sister, painting and visual arts. Like those are their things. And so I felt like, like you know, so I I, I learned how to oil paint, but that was Julia's thing, mm -hmm. you know. And that was, um, and then and I was never as good as she was. Um, but like I don't know. It felt it felt like. I convinced myself that I wasn't an artist, that I couldn't be an artist because I couldn't paint. Mm -hmm. And and then, like, you know, I wake up 20 years later and realize, holy shit, you're a textile artist. Yeah. Like, I became what I wanted to become, but under the guise of that's not what I'll ever be. Like, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really like weird. you ended up there anyway, despite your own efforts not to. <laughs> yeah, despite like, like in spite of myself and my, and my like, you know, my own limitations that I set for myself because, you know, I couldn't paint. So like, obviously I can't be an artist. I find it really interesting that when we're kids and we are, taught art like not when we are doing art in school but when we learn about art yeah we learn like exclusively about painters it's weird I think that it's it's super detrimentally limiting mm -hmm. um you know we don't we don't learn about the thinking behind the visual art we, we're taught about. We don't yeah. learn about the, you know, maybe if we have a really great teacher, we learn about the social context, but I never did. Yeah. When I was a kid, I was, you know, I was effectively told by an art teacher when middle school that I should, you know, probably stick to the sciences. Oh, and shit. I did. <laughs> I had a like, middle school art teacher that fucked me up too. So right. Like through high school to fulfill the art requirement that I had to fulfill in order to graduate, I took, 
Woodshop and AutoCAD. Yeah. Because I, I, you know, they were awesome and I loved them. But she told me that I shouldn't do art and I didn't. Ugh. And like, I mean, now I'm glad you said that it was explicit, but like I carry with me in my 40s a giant fuck you to that woman. Yeah. Because it was really unfair. And, uh, you know, but at the same time, I had a creative writing teacher in grade 11, Mm -hmm. many years after that art teacher, who insisted, like he almost physically forced me to become an editor of the student literary magazine. He never encouraged me to write for it. He wanted me to be an editor of it. And I look back at him and I say, thank you. Yeah. He you helped know, you find something that, that you felt you could be good at that did have a creative outlet, even though you didn't realize it was? No. I I never had that. That's... I, In fact, when I was in graduate school in my early 20s, I remember very distinctly feeling like I needed to be creative in some way, but yeah. I had thought that it was too late. Oh. Um, I didn't have a medium. I couldn't draw or paint, which, Mm -hmm. you know, I was told at age 11 kind of shut a lot of doors for me. And uh, I didn't know I could learn. I didn't know that it was okay to try anyway. And I didn't have a medium. And I remember talking to one of my professors in graduate school, my statistics prof, of all (laughs) I remember sitting in his office being like, I need a hobby and I don't know where to find one. Uh And it was that it was a horrible time. And, and I felt like, physically uncomfortable in my skin. I remember walking the aisles of AC Moore being like, this is not for me. How do I find what's for me? And, uh, and I, I bought a, a kit. I bought a mosaic kit, like a kit to make mosaic mosaic tiles. Yeah. Mosaic tiles. Mm -hmm. I was like, Oh, this is like gluing stuff to other glue stuff. stuff. Right. I was like, maybe, and I was dating someone at the time who like, spoiler alert, I'm now married to 20 years later. Um, and so he was like, Oh, let's make coasters. And then we were like, he, his mind went immediately to let's make more mosaics and let's go to home Depot and buy like bathroom tile and a scoring machine, (laughs) crack them down and make art. And I was like, okay. And then he did, And I kind of perseverated and... All right. Kim is really smart. I didn't know what perseverate means, so I looked it up. Perseverate. It's a verb. means to repeat or prolong an action, thought, or utterance after the stimulus that promoted it has ceased. So (laughs) that's your word of the day. Carry on. Came up with some grand plan that I was not able to execute. And, you know... It was it was almost like I was thinking of this when you were talking about your sisters, right? Like yeah. he, I gave him a creative outlet, mm-hmm. like you know, instead of myself. Yeah. Um. And on honestly, coming full circle in our conversation in two thousand three, when I wanted to make a friend and made a friend and got a hobby, yeah. I told my husband that he wasn't allowed to learn how to knit. <laughs> That needed to be for me. Thanks very much. And he wasn't able. He wasn't allowed to steal it from me. But that's funny. I did find that creative outlet and I'm so grateful for it because I have wisdom now to know. I wish I could go back and say to my 21 year old self, oh my God, you're, it's never too late for anything. So just try everything and don't judge yourself for it. But I also want to go back to my 11 year old self and say, you don't even like that art teacher. Yeah. Right. You don't, respect her what is why are you taking her opinion to mean anything go make bad art yeah or go great art go make anything you want and it doesn't matter if it's good or bad in any way who's judge right yeah the value judgment behind it is is inherently bullshit like you know who are the gatekeepers of what makes good art you know, like it's old white men just like the gatekeepers for everything else like (laughs) you know what i mean it's it's there's if it's good for us it's good art. That's right. That's right. Ugh. I feel like I spend a lot of my of my professional career telling people that it's okay. Yeah. You know, that like like if you don't like this knitting pattern, change it. If yeah. you don't like if it doesn't fit you, then it doesn't serve you and you should, you know, and this is how you make it fit. Like mm-hmm. you know, it's what we're doing is couture and it is art and it doesn't need to be critically acclaimed 
Like we're not we're not in this whole knitting thing to be like, you know, like professional knitwear designers, like most people, you know, like I yeah. I am. But you know <laughs> but like but you know what I mean? Like knitters in general aren't there to do you know, to to like sell their their finished goods. So like if it serves the purpose that you intended it to serve and it makes you feel good, it is your art. Right. That's right. Uh-huh. And I, I mean, and, and I feel like that too gets into craft yeah. too. Yeah. Like it's, it's, it's also okay if it's not art. Yeah. It's okay if you don't feel that it's art. It's okay. Or if you didn't intend it to be art. Yeah. You like know, it doesn't like have to it, be high concept. That's right. You know, it, it, it can simply be something that's fun to do, or it can simply be something where you're challenged to achieve a certain thing. Yeah. Like all of those reasons, there is no bad reason. No. Right? There's no unacceptable reason. There is no wrong motivation, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. 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 Well, I think this is probably why I'm so drawn to the arts and crafts movement in general, um, because it's it's a blurring of that line between what is art versus what is functional and what makes craft you know so like where where is that line drawn where does that where does something stop being about the function and be about the aesthetics of it instead you know where where is that where's that line it's so interesting i've been thinking so much about this because i participated uh as an artist that's how i was referred to mm-hmm. in uh a symposium recently yeah. and I was one speaker among seven and it was about, uh, they called it new craft. And I, I don't understand exactly what the definition of that is, yeah. but you know, it was people at the local arts university, uh, you know, and, and, and it was so interesting. Um, and it was one of those things that's my favorite kind of thing, right? Bringing different people together mm-hmm. who are each telling an individual story, but in the whole, a whole like a different story emerges. Yeah. Um, and uh, I met an uh, an artist who I think is a person I've been searching for for most of my creative life. Um, and uh, he makes so a long time ago. I decided that I really, really wanted to make something insane, mm-hmm. and. It was not long after I left crochet. And one of the reasons I left sort of the crochet industry is that I, it, it became too much for me not to just focus on the crochet I wanted to make. Yeah. And the crochet I wanted to make was absurd. Yeah. Uh, that's and that's all... not what Interweave Crochet sells. Like they no. sell, you know, functional like garments, you yeah. know. That's right. Yeah. Um, and what I wanted to do uh, was make a like a, an adult human sized uh, animatronic crocheted doll. Nice. Uh, and uh, and and a lot of my motivation for that was that I got involved with the local maker fair here, mm-hmm. and I started hanging out and getting to know people who make things completely different from anything that I made. And I used to love going to conferences in the yarn industry. That's how you and I met. And I loved Mm -hmm. spending time with other people who made things from yarn and fiber, whether it was weaving or spinning or knitting or crocheting or whatever it was. Um, you know, but to, to hang out with people who were as motivated to create things, but worked in such completely unrelated media was so interesting to me. And over the years, like at one point I was introduced to like the robotics lab at the university and maybe I would do something with the robotics lab and, and it became this engineering issue. And I was like, "Ah, it never quite felt right. And then I met this guy through this symposium who obsessively makes, um, sort of, uh, they're like animated puppets in a centuries old Japanese tradition and oh. are hand. And so he makes his own gears and he assembles these gears in a box. And on top of this box is a puppet that behaves kind of like a marionette. Oh and when God. he turns a crank, the puppet moves, <gasps> um, or when it's like mechanized. And yeah. I looked at him and we were eating brunch in this town that we had to fly to. It was in British Columbia, but it was so far away we had to fly there. Damn. And we were eating brunch and I was like, I'm just going to hit him up. And I was like, Justin, I have, <laughs> I have this dream and I'm hoping you don't mind if I share it with you. And he looked at me and he was like, let's do it. <laughs> uh, and, I, and I And I was like, for real? 
Uh, and he was like, yeah, I was like, cause I'm motivated by creepy Santa from like the animated, you know, the animatronic displays in the Macy's windows oh, yeah, at, yeah, yeah, yeah. in Rockefeller Plaza when I was uh-huh. growing up in New York city. Like this Where, is like, what I want. Like, like it's not anywhere near the uncanny Valley. Like it's just creepy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's just like, I'm going to turn my head left to right, raise my arm up and down, have this smile that doesn't move. And it's just profoundly unsettling. Yes. Yes. But I want to do it in a medium that I know in collaboration with a medium someone else knows. That's oh, my God, I'm so excited. Oh, thank you. And, And so that to me, and I'm like, is this art? Or is this craft? Is it? It's both. You know, and I honestly, I don't care. Right. Yeah. Like I'm not actually driven by that question. But for the first time, I mean, so much of what has driven me in the past outside of writing has been craft. It's mm-hmm. been technique. It's been, you know, one of the things I love about craft is how it is handed down, yeah. uh, you know, like like hand to hand, person to person, word of mouth, um, you know, the folk spreading of technique and utility and also expression and all yeah. those kinds of things. And I am driven here by art. My yeah. drive in this is, this is nuts. I love it. I have found someone who is driven by a similar kind of absurdity. Mm-hmm. And when we, we like made a play date a, a week or two oh ago and God, he came awesome. over and we were going to talk about this. And we also had these other ideas for like making mechanized things that were going to move around in certain ways. And so there are these two projects, but that mechanized thing even turned into, we're just riffing off each other. And yeah. we started talking about viruses and we were looking up imagery and it was like nuts and we're going to combine my skill in creating things out of textiles with his skill in the mechanics and the animation and we're gonna kind of see what we come up with and that's awesome excuse me thank you i'm so excited and this is like this is not business to me no you know this is not this is a whole new body of work and it's exciting to me in ways that I haven't felt excited about making things in a really long time. I mean, I get excited about kinds of things, but like, this is like, I think we're going to apply for an arts grant. Oh, shit, Um, this is going to be so cool. I hope so, because we're going to need room. Like, mostly we just need room to be able to store the kinds of things we're going to make. Yeah. Um, But we're going to be prototyping. Like, he went home and he's been prototyping. Holy shit. uh, Like, the mechanics of something I haven't even had the time to prototype yet in yarn. Yeah. Um, but also I want to start designing, like, if we're going to make a life-size animated thing separate from this other virus thing that we're doing, yeah. I, I need to start making something small. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I'm so excited. Yeah. Right? And we'll scale it up and we'll do that whole kind of a thing. But it's like, I think he's having that similar experience. It's almost like dating yeah. where he's like, you know, you don't want to come on too strong and, and be too excited, you know? <laughs> and so we're each like not emailing each other every day but we kind oh but you want to yeah you're holding yeah, yeah. it back right and so like, you don't want to be too thirsty so you're not right. like oh god totally like i had to sit my husband down and be like i hope you're never threatened by this but he's the one but not in the same way <laughs> <laughs> he's not my romantic but, ideal he is my like creative partnership ideal yeah. like kind of like i think that the both of us are sitting here going like i think that we might have decades of collaboration in oh, us that's right so like, cool you know, but again, it's the early stages. You never yeah. know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, oh, man. Okay, so there's a bunch of stuff that I want to talk to you about, but okay. we might have to do this la- later. Um, okay. Like, I have a, I have a whole, like, vision of, of using uh, textile, so knit and crochet and weaving to make um, an entirely accurate human body. <laughs> I want to make organs. I want to make, like intestines. I want to pack. I want basically want to make a model of the human body out of yarn. Yes. Including skin that you can open up and you can pull organs out and everything packs back in. Oh, I love that idea. Yeah, it's insane. Nobody steal my idea, okay? I have a lot of work to get through before I can start working on this yarn human anatomy model. Or if you know someone who wants to pay me to make this as an installation, let me know. Because then it would get to move to the top of my queue. Um, But yeah, okay. So (laughs) back to questions. (laughs) So what is your daily creative practice like? Mm, I don't have a strict formula for my day, Mm -hmm. in part because I'm the parent who is flexible. So all of that kind of comes around it. So like around my son's schedule, um, I sort of triage my days, Mm -hmm. Um, right? So I 
do freelance work as a writer and editor. And so every day there's, you know, the client work, mm -hmm. uh, that, that gets done. Um, and I also run now, uh, it's a very new project is an online community for creative adventurers. And so yes. that is work that I'm doing every day because we're building this thing and it's supported through Patreon. And so that is what I'm hoping will really sustain my own creative practice. Mm -hmm. Um, because it's, it's just, I finally feel like I, I, I'm, I'm able through this to do that work that you were talking about in terms of yeah. connecting with people and sort of shepherding people through finding their creative voice. Um, and so I'm working on that every day. I am, as I said, writing a novel. And so my goal every day is to meet a minimum word count, uh, on that novel. It's a very mighty ugly experience for me. Actually, yeah. it is very much focused on quantity over quality right now. I'm writing a truly shitty first draft. And, uh, <laughs> well, so, all, as all first drafts should be. Right, exactly. Like, I, I love the fact that nine years of doing Mighty Ugly, I feel like, has prepared me for this. <laughs> this is what my personal experience of Mighty Ugly has prepared me for. Uh, and, and so I love that. So my goal is to have 55,000 words written by the end of May, okay. um, which I'll then flesh out into a full, like a fuller length yeah. second draft. But um so I'm doing that every day and uh and so part of it is that it's like I have these boxes I need to tick off every day. I think that's my creative process. Yeah. And uh and I am driven in my own creative process by uh a like beautiful utilitarianism. And so it's part of my creative process to know that I'm earning my keep. Yeah. Uh, and so getting that client work done is a part of my creative process in that it is like one of the pillars. Yeah. Like that. it's like you've cleared that out and now your focus can then go to your own creativity, creativity. Yeah, exactly. And so like I it's almost like I earn my play. Yeah. Uh, that way. Um, but at the same time, I don't deny myself the play. Yeah. Either. And so uh, on any given day, it's. I try very hard to create something that my fingers are itching to make. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't really matter what that is. Yeah. I try to uh, explore ideas related to what motivates people to create, um, whether that's through writing, whether that's through, you know, hosting uh, video chats with members of our community, whether that's through uh, working on my podcast, which has been on hiatus for a couple of years, but I'm bringing it back. <laughs> oh, good. I was uh, gonna, I was gonna ask you about that just off, you know, off mic. Oh, well, yes, uh, I'll say it on mic. Um, <laughs> it's a, it's a podcast. I called it compulsory when I first started it because I'm fascinated by what compels people to make not just the I like doing something, but yeah. in those sometimes rare times when we have to do something like it's like exercising a demon. Yeah. Those when you feel absolutely things. possessed by it. Yeah. Like everything else gets pushed aside because I have to do this. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel that quite frequently in what I make. Yeah. I used to think that I was a failure as a maker because it takes me ages and ages and ages to finish anything. Um, because I push things aside because I feel compelled to make something else. Yeah. Um, in the end, I have simply come to accept that that is how I find creative satisfaction. And so yeah. I feel that a lot and I've almost kind of cultivated it. Like that's the yeah. high in my life is feeling possessed by a creative idea that I have to pursue immediately. Yeah. Uh, and so, so I'm, I'm working on the podcast again. And so like uh, in any given day, those are the things I need to do. I need to pursue these ideas I'm fascinated by. I need to create what my, what I'm like physically compelled to create. I need to connect with other people about their creative experience and I need to earn my keep. Yeah. And, um, certainly one of my drives is to earn more of my keep through one of the, you know, one of the first three pillars. Um, <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, that's not to say that I don't enjoy the client work I do. Yeah. I would just, I love not to do it anymore, but I really do enjoy doing it now. Yeah. It seems very well balanced to me. Thank you. I am 
in a very rare place at this moment of feeling like I have achieved balance. And I know that that's fleeting. Like I know that, you know, that's not going to last forever, but I am also allowing myself to feel like I'm reveling in it right now because it's such a rare thing. And I'm trying very actively to kind of examine it so that I might be able to replicate it more and more. It's sort of like, yeah, I am, uh, constantly in a state of wanting to learn to meditate. It's not (laughs) something I end up doing, but I feel like it, it's quite how I've heard people describe their experience becoming meditators is that kind of examining it, doing it every day, showing up. And over time it becomes something that they do more and more. And they're able to get into that meditative state, uh, more easily and more naturally. And I, I would like to achieve that in the, in the kind of state of balance that I'm experiencing right now in my work and my creativity that like, I'm going to keep showing up. I'm going to examine this. I'm going to keep practicing at it because even though I know I won't always achieve this state, mm-hmm. I would like to be better at doing it more frequently. Yeah. That's so interesting. You bring up meditation too, because meditation, I have a, I had an epiphany about meditation, um, a couple of months ago, um, that like, so I'm a, I'm a big believer that like we create ruts in our brain and our patterns of thinking, right? So like, this is how I visualize it, you know, like our patterns of thinking, like the synapses are used to firing in a specific order. You tell yourself you're shit at something like those synapses fire every time you think about doing something new, you know? So like you have to, you have to carve new ruts in your brain, you know, new channels for your thinking. Um, And, and that like, but meditation is just another channel of thinking. And so, so like the practice of meditation like you're gonna be you're gonna fail at it and actually that's good because it means you're carving you're carving the connection between the two ruts Mm -hmm. you know what I mean you're carving the new rut and it's going to be hard like you're going to keep falling into the rut like because that's how ruts work you know and so like like the practice of meditation is is the act of making a new channel for your brain to stay mindful and to and to be present so like any little bit that you catch of that during a meditation practice is building the new rut, the rut that right. you want to be in. I, it's, we can call it a groove. Groove. Instead yeah. Of, you know, it's like changing a rut to a groove. Yes. Yeah. I love that. I love that. And I like it's, it's funny. I've been thinking about what my physical experience is of this state that I've been in for a few weeks. And I, and I suspect it's very similar to that kind of a thing. Like yeah. I have, I am in a groove. Like, there's yeah. very little friction in my creative yes. life right now. And I, I know it'll come. And it it'll, absolutely it'll, will. You know, because you'll hit a happens. hard patch of road because you do, because there's, right. it, it's road. It always does. It yeah. always happens. And so, uh, yeah, like my goal, I like, I really like that metaphor is like smoothing out this groove yeah. well enough and doing the work now you while can find I find your way back to it. Yeah, so that I can find my way back to it more yeah. easily the next time. Yeah, so like every yeah. time when I'm meditating, every time that I have to drag myself back to present, um, you know, it's it's like an acknowledgement. Okay, that's where my mind went. That's interesting. Um, yeah. But like th- when I fit, when I'm dragging myself back to present, I imagine scooping out that new groove. Yeah, oh, I love that. It's it's working for me finally. Like you know, because I've been trying to meditate for. God knows, like fifteen years. Yeah, right. Um, and and have always felt like I'm failing at it because I have like I have monkey mind. Like I'm always, you know, thinking about the next creative project. I'm always like thinking about what I have to do because I'm so used to defining myself by how much I get done every day. You know, like yeah. it's a whole, you know. And fibromyalgia has completely shifted my entire, you know, description of self. So like, there's that aspect of it as well. And then it's physically important for me to meditate. Because I can't keep running the way I've been running. You know what? There's something to be said for sort of that acceptance of a permanent change. Yeah. Like I had, uh, I have a, one of my major arteries was injured in a minor surgery gone horribly Wait. wrong a few years ago, a Yikes. couple of years ago. Yeah, it was brutal. Um, I didn't almost die, Thank but God. I was permanently changed. Yeah. Um, that art, like there is no going back. Yeah. Um, and it was so interesting to me. I feel like, you know, 
my internal experience and my mental and emotional experience of that has been one of grappling with, I will never be the same again. I didn't cause this. I didn't bring this on. It was something that it was nobody's fault. It was a freak accident. Right. And I am lucky. Yeah. I'm lucky because I heal. Yeah. I'm lucky because on the outside, I'm no different. I'm lucky because on in my daily life, now that I'm healed, like the healing took a long time. Yeah. And I was on pain in the ass medication that affected my life in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I and I understood in that time a lot more what it is to be chronically ill yeah. while at the same time understanding that I wasn't going to be chronically ill forever. Yeah. yeah. And and I felt such gratitude for that because because is an every day of your life thing. And I got to have a day when that wasn't a part of my life anymore. Um, and at the same time, I know though that there's this tiny inside part of me that's weaker than the rest of me is inside. And that if something were to go wrong, chances are it would be there and forever, you know, and there's a chance that who knows when I'm going to need to have surgery to have that repaired. Yeah. You know, that the healing might not last forever. Yeah. Um, and I don't feel like a ticking time bomb in a way that I have about That's other good. aspects of my health over time. And there's all that kind of stuff. But I, I do feel like that mental and emotional experience of accepting a forever change mm-hmm. has affected the way I see a lot of other things, too. Dude, like I could write a goddamn book about it. Like it's it's <laughs> everything. It's yeah. it feeds so many different portions of your identity of your day-to-day life it's like my entire life has been rewritten to revolve around what I can and can't do with my body yeah yeah it's insane no I'm gonna cry (laughs) because it's it's something I'm still working on accepting you know the fact that that like I will be sick for the rest of my life yeah um, it will probably keep getting worse. Yeah. You know, and that's really hard to accept. Yeah. Yeah. And there's no, no platitude no. can take that away. Right. No, no like mindset can take that away. It, it's like, it's like trying to, it's sort of like trying to pretend you're some kind of single cell organism absorbing yeah. another one. Like it's a really big thing to carry around yeah. with you all the time and it's yeah. a foreign body. Yeah. You know, like how do you take this thing and make it a part of yourself yeah. when you well, don't like, want it? And there's a, a whole aspect of feeling betrayed by your body, like your body that's supposed to, yeah. you know, house yourself that's, you know, it's 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 a whole oh, it's that's a constant like back and forth for me. You know, like cuz I try I try really hard to see my body as like a partner in this. You know, like I have to take care of it like I would take care of my spouse. You know, I don't I don't right. um like my body feels like a third person in my marriage. Yeah. That's a really interesting way of putting it. I feel like mine has too in a, in our marriage where everything that led up to that minor surgery has been yeah. a part of our marriage too. Um you know, and it continues to be like, I remember speaking to my vascular surgeon, like suddenly I have a vascular surgeon. He's on my team for the rest of my life about the, the gynecological issues that led to this surgery. And I had only ever been a gynecological patient. Yeah. You know, that, that was the specialist that I have seen since I was a teenager. That is, that is how I identified myself. The part of my body that betrayed me was always that part. And I remember looking at him and he was asking me about all of these other underlying issues that had led to this minor surgery that rendered me sicker than I was in the beginning. And I said, you know, it's really interesting what I can live with now that I couldn't live with before. There's not a chance I'm going to do anything about it. No. Yeah. Because because like it's what was handed to you. And so you have to like learn to live with it. Yeah. My perspective has shifted. Yeah. uh, Tremendously. And it's uncomfortable yeah. what I live with now, yeah. but yet I can absolutely live with that discomfort yeah. if the alternative is risking everything that I had so cavalierly dove, you know, dived into, yeah. uh, you know, that kind of now left me in the hands of a vascular surgeon. Yeah. So 
you know, and there's all of that. Y'all, if you are one of those chronically ill makers out there, I see you. I am here for you. I have resources. I have support. I have put my obsessive researching tendencies into figuring out coping mechanisms, and I will always be there to be the person that says, shit, that sucks. I'm so sorry you had to deal with that. If you haven't read How to Be Sick by Tony Bernhard, I highly recommend that you do. My library had it, but I've put up an Amazon affiliate link if you would like to get it shipped to you. Hello, fewer spoons used up. And give me a bit of an affiliate support at the same time. I love you, fellow Spoonie. Be well. I I really, it was a fluke. I was a victim of happenstance and a, a complication of a minor surgery that mm. is so rare, it's not quantified in the literature. Wow. Like I knew going in that there was a, you know, 2% chance of this and a 1% chance of that. And, you know, they're mucking around in your arteries. Yeah, there's always, yeah, there's always a complication risk. Yeah, they were mucking around in my arteries. And as it turned out, the tiny, tiny, tiny little catheter that they were mucking around with developed a kink. And it scraped the inside of my artery and injured it badly. And it was no one's fault. Yeah. Like, and it was, and I have wanted to try to get in touch with the physician who performed the procedure because it was a resident who performed the procedure. And what I remember is I was kind of half awake, like I was sedated and I had felt something during the procedure and they told me, if you feel anything, let us know. And I said, I feel a twinge in my hip. And they were like, whoa. And what I learned later was that they were like, hands off, like what is happening? And because I had spoken up, they were able to not make it worse. Yeah. Um, But when I woke up, that resident was nowhere to be found and the attending physician was... Yeah, had to completely taken over my care. Yeah, because that's and what they I do. Have, right? And that was good. I, I received excellent care. Yeah. But I've wanted to hunt down that attending physician and because I want him to let the resident know yeah. that it's all okay. Yeah. Because I know that's a part of learning and I know that, that hopefully he knows it's okay. Yeah. But I don't know if he ever hears from the patient that got injured yeah, on his that it's okay. okay. Yeah. Um, and I really need to do a better job of trying to hunt that position down because his like he has like a Twitter, but not as a public email address. And I'm like, do I DM him on Twitter? Yes. That's super weird. No, but I should. You're right. You absolutely, absolutely should. should. Yeah. So thanks for talking to me, Kim. Where can people find you on the interwebs? On the interwebs, I am at kimworker.com. It's W-E-R-K-E-R. All of my links to everything is on there, including the community and my weekly newsletter. You should get it. I do. (laughs) Yay! I'm a patron. Thank you, Miriam. Yes, always. Uh, Okay, so anywhere else? Instagram, Twitter? Uh, Also, yeah, like all of my links are on my website. But yeah, I'm KP Worker um, on most of the social media and something different on Facebook, but I'm trying to get off Facebook. Yeah, we'll link it. Yeah, no, and Facebook. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Thanks for talking to me, Kim. Thank you so much for having me on. My sincerest hope in talking to Kim for this episode is that her words and her approach to making will help you do something fearless. I want more than anything for your making to be fulfilling, for your creativity to burn like a fire in your soul, and for you to feel proud and happy about the fact that you conquered something you told yourself you couldn't do. So what are the stories that you're telling yourself? What have you convinced yourself that you aren't capable of doing, or that you would just fail if you tried? I'll give you a second to think about it. Have you got that? Hold it in your mind. Now listen closely. You can do that thing. Your first attempt might be kind of shitty. That's okay. In fact, that's good. Do it anyway. Do the hard thing. In fact, do the hard thing and then tag me either as Mimnits or Yarn Stories Podcast with the hashtag doing the hard thing. I want to see you all making what scared you. I want to see you work past that fear. I want you to show others how they can do the hard thing too. You can follow me in all my making at Miriam Felton Knit Designs on Facebook and on Twitter or Instagram as Mimnits. Thank you so much to the patrons who keep this podcast paid for. You can join the Patreon at patreon.com slash Miriam Felton. 
If you can't support the podcast with money, I totally understand. You can rate and review in Apple Podcasts, Facebook, or Stitcher, or share the podcast with your fiber-loving friends via social media or word of mouth. Those are completely free ways to help me, to support this podcast, to show that you appreciate the work I'm doing. If you want to send me money, but you can't do a recurring monthly thing, you can buy me a coffee at ko-fi.com slash Miriam Felton. You can follow the podcast on social media via Facebook, search for Yarn Stories Podcast with no space between yarn and stories, Twitter at Yarn Stories Pod, or Instagram at Yarn Stories Podcast. This podcast was produced in Salt Lake City, Utah, with production help from Sid Fallon. Music is by the ever-elusive Breakmaster Cylinder. I'll be back here in two weeks talking to Shannon Welsh of Fiber Evolution, Bast Fiber Producers. Thanks. Hey, babe. Hi. What you doing in the closet?